important that our patients understand that we at Zeering Medical, all of us, every one of our staff, recognize that... Good afternoon, Dr. Baker. Good afternoon, Mr. Nelson. I may have just a moment, Your Honor, to... So, Dr. Baker, uh, thank you for being here with us this afternoon. Uh, just some follow-up questions I kind of want to break up into two different sections. One about the autopsy and then um, some other questions about events after autopsy, okay? Okay. All right. So, you understand, Dr. Baker, that um, through, you've testified in many cases in Hennepin County before? Yes, I have. Dakota, Scott County as well? Not nearly as much, but yes. And you understand that... Uh, as a part of uh, the process of exchanging information, the defense receives copies of, of everything, your reports, meeting notes, prior uh, statements you've given, things of that nature. Yes. Right? Okay. And um, have you had opportunities to review all of that information prior to your testimony today? To the best of my knowledge, yes. Okay. And ultimately what you testified is in a death investigation, it's it's much more than just simply an autopsy, agreed? Correct. And in fact, if, you know, you pull your file, it usually ends up being a few inches thick, right? We're actually paperless at the medical examiner's <laughs> office, but if you printed it out, <laughs> yeah, I guess it would be a few inches thick. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what I did, and that's what it is. Uh, I guess I got to get with the times. Um but ultimately, that file contains your autopsy report, correct? Correct. Death, death certificate, the, the paperwork that you fill out for the state of Minnesota? Yes. We don't actually get a copy of the death certificate from the state, but everything we put on the death certificate is in our file. Right. Um, and then you also keep track of conversations that you have with people, right? Generally, yes. It's, that's usually more my investigators who are talking to family, treating physicians, uh, you know, hospital records departments and stuff. So you keep sort of a log, so to speak, of today investigator so-and-so spoke with X, right? Again, I don't personally do that so much, but yes, my investigators do. Right. And it's all a part of this file, right? Correct. And then in addition, you obtain any known medical records um, that may factor into your analysis as well, right? Yes. Um, previous, uh, you had received some uh, hospital records from HCMC regarding Mr. Floyd, correct? Correct. But you don't go out and try to search, or perhaps you do, try to search for every f uh, provider that he or that any person generally may have seen. In, in most cases, that's correct, Counselor. There wouldn't be a lot of point in us trying to get every medical record ever generated for a particular decedent. It would only be if I thought it would help me understand the cause and manner of death better. Okay, fair enough. Um, now, I want to talk to you first about um, the word complicating. How do you define the word complicating as you used it as to the cause of Mr. Floyd's death? I use the word complicating the way I think most physicians use the word complications, and I'm guessing that most people who've ever been a patient or had a loved one who's been a patient knows what physicians mean by the word complications. It means that an intervention occurred and there was an outcome that was untoward on the heels of that intervention. So for example, somebody goes into the hospital for hip surgery and they develop a blood clot in their leg. That's a complication. 
you get started on a new medication for a heart condition and you have an allergic reaction to it. That's a complication. So it's, it's an untoward event on the heels of an intervention that, that happened. That's, that's how I look at it as a physician. Right. And, and it could be during an incident as, or as a result of an incident, right? Again, we don't usually use the word incident in medical practice, but yeah, it could be an immediate complication as a result of a medical intervention or therapy, or it could be what we call a delayed complication. And um, there are certain circumstances that precede those complications. Agreed? Um, that's a little vague, Counselor. I wonder if you could... Well, I mean, in, in any death investigation, you're trying to determine the cause and manner of death, right? Correct. And in this particular case, you obviously took into consideration the police restraint, right? Correct. But you also took into consideration the heart disease, correct? Yes. As well as the toxicology results. Agreed? Yes. And you factored those in in your, uh, in your cause. There's the cause and manner of death. Uh, and then there's the second thing that you left blank, right? And then there's the contributing causes or contributing factors. Yes. The, the term of art is other significant conditions is what you're getting at, Counselor. Yeah. And that's simply just something you have to do for the CDC, or did you take those into consideration as contributing to Mr. Floyd's cause of death? So when you put those on a death certificate as a physician, what you're saying is, I think these played some role in this death. They had a contributing condition. I'm, I'm unaware of how the CDC would mandate what goes on there. Presumably, the goal is you put things on there that you believe are relevant. You don't list tr trivial stuff on there that didn't play a role. And so if something was significant enough, uh, you put it on. But if it's insignificant and didn't contribute, you leave it off. Generally, yes. Okay. And so in your opinion, uh, both uh, the heart disease as well as the history of hypertension and the drug, uh, the drugs that were in his system played a role in Mr. Floyd's death? In my opinion, yes. All right. Now... Again, in terms of your autopsy report, uh, you, you don't generally note negative findings, right? If something is normal, you may just say it's normal, but you wouldn't, you're not going to take special note to say the heart is completely, perfectly normal. Uh, that's a really long question, Counselor, but I think I can give you a reasonable answer to that. For most normal organs we have a boilerplate description for what that organ is. So if a spleen is normal, I'm going to give a normal description of the spleen with the weight of that spleen. The same for a liver. Depending on the nature of a particular case, there are, I used this term earlier, pertinent negatives. Things that you think might be on the body based on the circumstances, so you specifically seek those things out, and if they're not there, you document them because their lack, their the fact that they're not present really means something. So I don't know if that answered your question. There's some things that are normal, but they're almost always normal, and we go on to the next step of the autopsy. There's some things that, depending on the complexity of the case, the fact that it's not there, you're going to dwell on that. You're going to do a special dissection. You're going to take a picture, whatever you need to do to document that you specifically looked for something and it wasn't there. Okay, and so in that in that regard, if you note something, uh, whether whether it's odd or irregular or it's the negative right you're gonna you, you take special precaution to note those things in your autopsy ideally yes you not only do you 
document that in your narrative report, but you take a picture of things that are there and you document things that aren't there that, that people might have expected to be there. Okay. And it was it's interesting to me that you made a conscious decision not to watch any videos before you performed the autopsy, correct? Correct. And that was to prevent bias you described? In general, yes. Um, I don't want to go into an autopsy with a preconceived notion that I already know what happened because that might tempt you to skip certain steps or not do certain things that could turn out to be relevant. So, and just full disclosure, counsel, to fully answer the question, I did see the video that the entire world saw later that day after Mr. Floyd's autopsy. I did not release his body until the following morning. So had I seen something on the video that triggered yet another thought in my mind, I still had the chance to act on it. I did not want that to be in my mind when I physically performed his autopsy on the morning of the 26th. Understood. But you had received some briefing from law enforcement or from somebody to say, here's generally what we know about what happened. It was pretty high level, but yes, I got a phone call from the BCA that, that, that a man had gone unresponsive in police custody while he was being restrained. He had died at Hennepin County Medical Center. Um, and that was largely what I knew going into the autopsy. I, I believe I was aware that there had been pressure applied to his neck, uh, but beyond that, that's pretty much what I knew going into the autopsy. So you were, um, you took special, because you had learned that there was potential pressure to the neck, you took special steps to look at the neck, neck area, shoulders, etc. right? Yes. And because of that, you did this unique incision or this specific incision to uh, lift the skin off to look uh, under the surface, so to speak. That's correct. All right, and we'll come back to that in a second. Um, you did note, I want to focus on the heart for a little bit. You noted that uh, the heart was dilated. Yes. What causes that? So dilated is just fancy medical lingo for has gotten a little bit bigger than it used to be. Like when you blow up a balloon, it dilates for lack of a better um, lay description. Mr. Floyd's heart was, if I can refer to my report counselor. Refresh your recollection. It would. So I described the ventricles, which are the, the two main pumping chambers of the heart, the right and the left, as mildly dilated in Mr. Floyd's case. I would interpret that as being part and parcel of his high blood pressure. Um, that's a manifestation of the heart getting bigger and heavier as it works against that continued high blood pressure over a period of time. Um, you also took note of the size of Mr. Floyd's heart, right? Um, it's actually the weight counselor, but Sorry. yes, weight. absolutely yes. did take note of the weight, yes. All right, and that was 540 grams? That is correct. And uh, you're familiar with the papers of DeMaio and Molina on the normal heart size? I am familiar with DeMaio and Molina paper, although the one that I usually use is the Kitzman paper from the Mayo Clinic. Okay. And what's the maximum size of a heart under that standard? So the Kitzman paper normalizes heart weights as a function of your body length and your body weight. Because if you think about it, a very large person is going to have a larger heart than a very small person. So we don't want to penalize people for being too big or too small. That's why you normalize their heart weight. So in Mr. Floyd's case, um, the upper limit of normal for his body length, according to the reference that I use, is 510 grams. The upper limit of normal for his body weight would be 521 grams. 
yet he was 540 grams, and so he is outside the upper limit of normal. That means on the bell-shaped distribution of heart weights for a man his size, he's way out on one of the tail ends, the heavy end. Okay. And um, all of these various standards in terms of the weight of a heart, they're peer-reviewed? Um, as far as I know, yes. The reference I use is from the Mayo Clinic Proceedings, which I'm going to assume is peer-reviewed. And as would be, say, DeMaio and Molina's or the Northwestern studies or any of these other studies? Um, I'm not familiar with the other studies you're referencing, Counselor. The DeMaio and Molina paper, I believe, was published in the American Journal of Forensic Medicine and Pathology, which I know to be peer-reviewed. Okay. And you would agree that the larger the heart is, the more blood it needs uh, to provide adequate oxygenation. Agreed? As a general rule, I would say that is true, yes. What types of things cause a person's heart to be bigger than normal? The most common cause by far in adults in the developed world would be high blood pressure. There are a number of far less common causes. Um, aortic valve disease could do it if the heart's pumping against a defective valve. There are genetic causes of an enlarged heart. Um, typically, we can tell those by looking at the heart grossly and microscopically. Um, those are much farther down the list than, than high blood pressure, which, again, is the number one by a long shot. Based on your review of Mr. Floyd's medical records, you determined that he has a history of high blood pressure, correct? Yes, that was, it was very helpful to learn that from his medical records. He was known to be hypertensive. Um, can you describe the narrowing or the stenosis of the coronary arteries in a little bit more detail? I can, Counselor, if I may refer to my report again. So as I mentioned uh, when I was describing the photographs earlier, he had 75% proximal and 75% mid-narrowing of his left anterior descending coronary artery. Again, in most people, that would be the largest of the three coronary arteries. He had 75% narrowing of the first diagonal branch of his left anterior descending coronary artery. And then in his right coronary artery, which in most people is the second largest of the three, he had 90% proximal narrowing. And what do forensic pathologists generally consider to be enough narrowing of the arteries to cause a sudden death? We usually look to 75% greater as, the, as capable of causing sudden death. And are you familiar with uh, myocyte necrosis? Yes. And do you have to have myocyte necrosis to cause a sudden death? No, you do not. In an arrhythmia, there would be no necrosis, correct? So an arrhythmia is, a, is an electrical phenomenon, not an anatomic one. And so I, I really can never diagnose an arrhythmia post-mortem. We just have to infer that from the circumstances and from the condition of the coronaries. And when we describe hypoxia of the heart, that's the reduction of oxygen to the heart, correct? Correct. And can you... Uh, Can hypoxia to the heart cause sudden death by other means? Or would it just be the arrhythmia? Um, well, there's, there's many ways that a lack of oxygen to the heart could cause death. One could be a sudden dysrhythmia, where the person's heart goes from a normal beat to a non-perfusing beat, and the person would literally just collapse right in front of you. Depending on the nature of the coronary uh, artery disease, the person could have a thrombus. They can present to the emergency room with crushing chest pain and sweating and difficulty breathing. 
that would be a different mechanism of death. So there's, there's different ways the heart manifests. It is not getting enough oxygen, but one of them is, is sudden collapse and death. And um, sometimes people can survive that for a longer period of time. Survive. The thrombus you just described? I mean, like, Correct. Correct. I mean, I, I don't know the numbers, but obviously people can and do survive thrombi in their coronary arteries. That's why we have clot-busting drugs and cardiologists on call for emergency rooms for urgent catheterizations and stuff like that. Gotcha. Now, can you generally describe the conduction system of the heart? Uh, only in the broadest terms, because I'm not an expert in the conduction system of the heart. I have other people I rely on for that, but it's basically the electrical system of the heart. Um, there's a, heart, a part of your heart called the sinoatrial node, and that's like the little watch in your heart that starts every heartbeat. Um, you would be able to see what it's doing on an EKG if you were looking at an electrical tracing in a living person. That's then conducted to another node that's known as the AV node, the atrioventricular node, and then the electrical impulses go out from that to the ventricles that cause them to beat. Um, you can actually see the conduction system under the, micro under the microscope if you take it out and look for it. Um, and there's, on very rare occasions, we do that. Um, it wouldn't have been necessary in Mr. Floyd's case, but that's basically what the conduction system does. If the conduction system is impaired, what happens? I, I'd have to defer to a cardiologist on that because there's so many different ways it can be impaired. Sometimes it's completely benign. Sometimes a person might need a, a pacemaker or even a defibrillator. It totally depends on the nature of the derangement. Which, uh, which of the arteries supplies the, the uh, you, you, that first one, the SA node, the sino? The sinoatrial node? Right. I believe it's a small branch of the right coronary artery in most people. And is that the one that was 90% occluded? Not the branch. I didn't dissect out the branch. But yes, the, the main right coronary artery was 90% narrowed. Um, you're aware also of the methamphetamine that was found in Mr. Floyd's system? Yes. Does methamphetamine further constrict the vessels and ventricles and arteries? I don't know. I'm not an expert in the specific toxicology of methamphetamine. It is certainly hard on your heart in the sense that it does things like drive up the heart rate and drive up blood pressure. I don't know if it's a vasoconstrictor. Um, but in either way, as a general rule for forensic pathology, methamphetamine is not good for a, a damaged heart, a heart with coronary artery disease. Does the amount of uh, the, or the level of the toxicological findings affect whether it's good for the heart or bad for the heart? I don't know that there's a scientific answer to that, Counselor, because I'm not aware that there's a quote-unquote safe level of methamphetamine. And um, especially illicit methamphetamine, right? Uh, no safe level of a street drug versus the uh, amphetamines that are sometimes prescribed. Yeah, so I'm very unfamiliar with any medical use for methamphetamine in approved circumstances. I'm aware that amphetamine is used in some circumstances. That's definitely not my area of expertise. Again, my high-level overview as a forensic pathologist is all other things being equal. Methamphetamine is not good if you have um, bad coronary arteries. And um, exertion also causes uh, the, the heart to work harder? Correct and therefore would require more oxygen? Correct. More blood has to pump through to oxygenate you know, the heart and 
send it to the rest of the body, right? Correct. And so in this particular case, uh, we have uh, Mr. Floyd's heart is at least above average size, right? Correct. He has a heart with narrowed coronary arteries, right? He does. There was evidence of a period of exertion uh, prior to his uh, being deceased? Yes. I mean, we're getting outside the autopsy now, obviously, but it's clear from the videotapes that, yes, there was a period of exertion prior to him becoming unconscious. So in terms of, in terms of your investigation, you ultimately did watch the videos? Correct. Including the body-worn cameras of the officers? Yes. And did you also, were you also provided with other videos in terms of surveillance videos, additional bystander videos, things of that nature? I was. And were you provided with investigative materials that what people said happened, etc.? Uh, no, I did not have those. Okay. Have you ever certified a death due to hypertensive cardiomegaly? I don't know how to speak. M-E, cardio, M-E-G-A-L-Y, megaly? So the answer to that, counselor, is yes. Um, the term you're going for is hypertensive cardiomegaly, which is fancy medical lingo for the heart is too big because of high blood pressure. We don't typically use that term. We just use the term hypertensive cardiovascular disease because it's a little more precise. But, but yes, I have used that or similar terminology. Have you ever certified a death due to arthrosclerotic cardiovascular disease? Yes. And similar with similar narrowings of the arteries compared to Mr. Floyd? Yes. In terms of the injuries to Mr. Floyd, the abrasions and things of that nature, um, obviously they appeared to be fresher to you. Would you agree with that? They do appear to be fresh, but I want to be very careful in my answer. There's not any literature that allows you to date those kinds of injuries with any precision. Um, you know, presumably there's contextual data that would allow us to know that Mr. Floyd didn't have those abrasions, you know, an hour before he died or whatever. If you just showed me those abrasions blindly, could I tell you how old they are as a pathologist? And the answer is no, not with any precision. And in terms of the abrasions that we looked at on Mr. Floyd's body, um, they could have been from the period of time he was restrained on the ground, agreed? Correct. They could have also been consistent with the period of time where he was taken to the ground or brought to the ground, right? Well, that would be true as long as there's something in his environment that would explain those abrasions. I mean, it, it, some of those would take a fairly rough surface to produce. A, a smooth surface wouldn't. You really, really expect that to cause those. Understood, but if you were if you were in the midst of um, a struggle with police officers and the police officers brought Mr. Floyd to the ground, the moment of impact with the ground could have resulted in some of those abrasions. Objection, Your Honor. It's beyond the scope and calling for speculation. Overruled. Would you mind repeating the question, Counselor? Sure. The abrasion, some of the abrasions that we looked at. It would also be likewise consistent with Mr. Floyd being taken out of a police car and put onto the ground. Same objection beyond the scope of the autopsy. Yes, depending on how he made contact with the ground, if you know if the if the direction of motion is correct and there's enough abrasive force, yes, that contact could explain those abrasions. Okay. 
you agree with the general proposition that the prone position is not inherently dangerous? As far as I know, based on my understanding of the medical literature, that is true. Now, in terms of your autopsy reports, um, there is no, uh, you, you dissected Mr. Floyd's shoulder and neck area, right? That's correct. And you found no bleeding into the subcutaneous tissues of the neck and back, right? That is correct. And there's no bleeding into the muscles of the back, correct? That's correct. And you don't have any section in your uh, autopsy report uh, to describe any injuries whatsoever to Mr. Floyd's neck and back like you do other areas of the report. Um, that's not true, Counselor. There's a special paragraph that specifically describes me dissecting his back and not finding anything. Okay. And you took pictures of that as well? Correct. And all of those procedures um, were documented in the normal course of how you, uh, when you conduct a, an autopsy, right? Yes, all of those things were photographed. And you did that so that other people would have an opportunity to review uh, your work, correct? Correct. And you understand that people have done that, right? Yes. Now, you have, I'm assuming, conducted many autopsies in your career? I have. How, if you had to venture a guess, how many autopsies have you conducted? I, I've never kept a spreadsheet but I would say it's probably in the neighborhood of 2,900 to 3,000. Okay. You've um, done other autopsies where asphyxiation was the suspected cause of death? Yes, asphyxia is a very common cause of death in my line of work. Right. Uh, you see it manifests itself in many ways, right? That's correct. And there are certain things that you look for in the course of your autopsy to determine whether or not this death would be consistent with asphyxiation. Agreed? Yes and no. It depends on the type of asphyxia you're talking about. There, there are many ways that human beings die of asphyxia. So as pathologists, we're, we want to make sure we know the type of asphyxia that we're talking about because the signs that you would see are going to vary from one type to another. And including um, you, you look at the brain for signs of lack of oxygen, right? We do, but to be fair, the brain, the person has to survive the anoxic brain injury for a considerable period of time before we can see anything. In most of the asphyxias that we investigate, we're not going to see any acute changes in the brain. You look for uh, musculoskeletal changes to the body, right? Again, depending on the nature of the asphyxia, yes. So you may look for perhaps if the asphyxia was from the front to the back, Broken hyoid bones, for example? Correct. We're specifically looking at things like the muscles of the neck, the thyroid cartilage, the hyoid bone, and things like strangulations and hangings where the, there's pressure on the neck. Okay. And um, you formed some opinions ultimately about the amount of pressure and whether the pressure was applied to the neck, right? Could you be more specific, Counselor? Well, ultimately you have your... Um, you have described your cause of death, right? Correct. And part of your cause of death includes neck restraint, right? Uh, I believe I actually used the term neck compression, neck compression. but yes, that, that is on the top line of my cause of death statement. And in the course of your many conversations that you've had with various prosecutors uh, and law enforcement officers, 
you, after watching the video, you've made some statements about where you thought Mr. Chauvin's knee was placed. Would you agree with that? Yes. And did you feel that Mr. Chauvin's knee was compressing his neck? Yes. Did you describe it as being more on the back or in this uh, lower part, base, base part of the neck? So in my impression from the video, and I want to be very clear, I have no special expertise in looking at videos. Um, I'm just looking at them as another person trying to figure out what happened. In my opinion, it would appear that Mr. Chauvin's knee was primarily on the back or the side or the area in between on Mr. Floyd's neck. Did you see any evidence that he was uh, occluding the carotid artery? It, it did not appear to me on the video that his knee would have been able to occlude the carotid artery. Um, even if it were, normal people have two carotid arteries, and the, the unoccluded carotid artery would continue to supply blood to the brain. And when you look at deaths by, uh, by manual strangulation, for example, are you also looking for bruising? Yes. You're looking for bruising. Do you... Do you consider, do you see that bruising in the majority of your cases or not in the majority of your cases? Well, keep in mind that my decedents, my patients are all deceased. And so if my patients were strangled, it was so significant that they died. And I, I say that because if you were to ask an ER doc for her experience looking at living strangulation victims, you might get a different answer. In my world, we typically see bruises on the outside of the neck. We see abrasions on the neck. We see bruises to the small muscles of the neck. Um, depending on the type of strangulation and how old the decedent was, we can even see fractures of the thyroid cartilage and the hyoid bone. Um, and we, we often see petechiae as well, which are little tiny blood spots on the lining of the eyes. Sometimes you can see them on the face, on the inside of the lips, even the inside of the mouth. And, and did you observe any of those signs in this case? No, I did not. And in terms of, you know, when you think about just kind of the classic strangulation, I'm taking my fingers and I'm, my hands and I'm applying pressure to your neck, even those small fingers, you, you would expect to see bruises consistent with the size of my fingers, right? Again, in my line of work, we more often than not see bruises. Um, you did say consistent with the size of your fingers. That might be true on television shows, but in the real world, there's not a lot of correlation between the size of bruises we see and the size of assailant's hands. But we are looking for those telltale bruises. All right. And in terms of, in this particular case, uh, you, the, the knee, the placement of the knee being a pretty bony, hard, round object, right? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty concentrated right under the kneecap at the force. Right. And of course, the shin bone is just below the skin, right? Yes. And it's sort of triangular in its nature, right? On cross-section, yes. And so if a substantial amount of force was being used by the knee or the shin bone on the neck or back area in your line of work, and if that force was sufficient to uh, asphyxiate him, would that, would you expect to see bruising? I would expect to see bruising, but I don't know that the lack of bruising excludes that. You and I kind of just pivoted from strangulation, which is really pressure to the front of the neck, to the pressure of the back of the neck. And it, that's just not something that I think we see as medical examiners, pressure to the back of the neck explaining a strangulation.
uh, or an asphyxiation. Correct. So is there any objective medical finding in your autopsy that shows a sufficient or significant amount of pressure to the back? Again, I think we've covered this. I did not find any injuries to Mr. Floyd's back, not on the outside of his body, not looking at the soft tissue under his skin to make sure I didn't miss any occult bruises. I, I didn't find any bruises on his back. Did you find any hypoxic changes to Mr. Floyd's brain? I did not, but again, a person has to survive for many hours before we would be able to see those as pathologists. And you're generally familiar with a hypoxic death and how that occurs? Again, Counselor, it really depends on the nature of the asphyxia. Keeping in mind, in my world, asphyxia is hangings, it's strangulations, it's carbon monoxide poisoning, it's drownings. There's all different ways people can be asphyxiated. It really depends on which mechanism you're talking about. Well, generally, regardless of the mechanism, would you generally see symptoms consistent with hypoxia? Would a, would a person exhibit certain symptoms? So symptoms is a little outside my bailiwick because we're talking about living people and I don't treat living people who are suffering from hypoxia of any cause. So, I mean, Dr. Dr. Thomas, who just testified, would testify that you may see confusion uh, when someone is going into a hypoxic state. Objection, Your Honor, to the characterization of Dr. Thomas' testimony. Uh, rephrases. What do you agree So... Your role as a medical examiner, right? You take into consideration information from lots of different sources. Okay? That is true. And there may be cases where you um, uh, where you just don't know what's going on, right? You can't figure something out. Could you be more specific? Well, you, you have a, a decedent on in your. Uh, medical examining table, and there appears to be some sort of tropical disease, right? I'm assuming you're not a tropical disease or an infectious disease expert, right? I'm certainly not an expert in tropical diseases. We do diagnose a lot of infectious diseases at the end office. But if there's some sort of infectious or tropical disease, you may go to another person and ask that person, hey, are you familiar with this? I object to question that in terms of relevance and beyond scope. Beyond the scope is overruled. Uh, relevance at this point is sustained. Sure. Do you rely on the expertise of other physicians when you conduct an autopsy? Not always, but I am never above reaching out to clinical colleagues or other pathologists if they have an area of expertise that would help me. And part of your job as a pathologist is to attempt to determine whether there is asphyxia in a particular case, right? Again, it completely depends on the nature of the case, counselor, but we are, if it appears to be an asphyxial death, we're always trying to get at the root of how did this occur? Why did this person asphyxiate? And as a physician, you're a physician and a forensic pathologist, you're familiar with what happens to the human body when someone asphyxiates, right? In general, yes. Again, I don't actually see living people asphyxiate. I don't treat living victims of different types of asphyxia in a clinical setting. But in the context of your research or education, you may go to a conference and they're saying, this, here's an asphyxia death. Let's talk about it. Right? Here's a picture of someone hanging from all the way fully suspended versus someone who is on their knees and 
and suspend it forward with a belt or something. Objective questions may again Sustain is relevant. Are you familiar with the symptoms of hypoxia? Again, they would be very general symptoms, and I don't know what the differential diagnosis for those symptoms would be. What would the general symptoms be? Of hypoxia? Right. Probably some form of mental status change in the form of confusion or disorientation. Incoherent speech? Again, the differential diagnosis for something like that is so long. Um, could asphyxia explain that? Yes, but there are many other things that could as well. When someone is hypoxic, does that cause that person to breathe faster? I honestly don't know. Again, it probably depends on the nature of the asphyxia. I would defer any further questions to a pulmonologist because they're the experts in breathing. Okay. Would you, based on your understanding, you reviewed the toxicology of Mr. Floyd, right? Yes. You'd agree that fentanyl is a respiratory depressant? That's my understanding, yes. And it slows breathing, resulting in lower oxygen levels? Um, it can, yes. And, and uh, similarly increasing the carbon dioxide, correct? Um, what it would do to carbon dioxide would be outside the scope of my expertise. I would defer that to a pulmonologist or maybe a toxicologist. Uh, methamphetamine is a stimulant, correct? Correct. Meaning, again, it causes the heart to beat faster. Correct. Causes the heart to work harder. Yes. Causes constriction of the arteries. I, I believe you already asked me that, Counselor, and my answer was I don't recall if that's a specific mechanism of methamphetamine, but I would acknowledge that it increases your heart rate and the work of the heart. So have you certified deaths by overdose? hundreds of times a year. Have you certified deaths uh, as an overdose where the level of fentanyl was similar to the level of fentanyl in Mr. Floyd? Yes. Have you done so where levels were lower? Yes. Or were higher? Yes. It's the lowest level of death of, by fentanyl overdose that you have certified. Uh, without doing a search of my office's records, I. I'm not prepared to give you an answer on that. I know I've seen levels as low as three nanograms per ml and possibly lower. Um, like all death investigations that we do, if it involves a drug overdose, you also want to try to piece together the person's history of how much they've been using it, how long they've been using it, if they're tolerant to it at all. There's a lot of variables that go into it, but, but I've seen levels as low as three. In some cases, even lower if there's other intoxicants on board, such as alcohol or benzodiazepines. So the combination of drugs uh, in any person's system is a relevant consideration. I'm sorry, did you say irrelevant or irrelevant? Relevant, irrelevant con consideration. Yes, combinations of drugs and interactions of drugs can be relevant. And that's why you included both the uh, heart condition of Mr. Floyd as well as his toxicology findings as other contributing uh, issues in, to his death, correct? That's correct. All right. Now, I just want to kind of review with you um, the history of your involvement in this case, if that's okay. Okay. Um, you, uh, obviously, Mr. Floyd.
was deceased on February, or excuse me, May 25th of 2020, correct? Correct. You performed the autopsy on the 26th? Yes. And after the autopsy, uh, you had a meeting with some Hennepin County attorneys, correct? Correct. On May 26th, correct? Yes. And um, do you recall telling them that the autopsy revealed no physical evidence that Mr. Floyd died of asphyxiation? I don't know that I don't know what my specific language is, but yes, that is what I conveyed to them was the lack of anatomical findings that would that would support that conclusion. All right. And you told them that you had avoided um, watching the videos at that point, right? Until after I'd performed the autopsy, yes. All right. Do you recall telling them certain factors that you uh, thought contributed to the death? Members of the jury, you should consider any statements made outside of court as a possible impeachment of the witness's testimony and not for the uh, what is actually being asserted. Mr. Nelson, you may ask that question. Thank you. Do you recall telling the Hennepin County Attorney's Office on May 26, after you conducted your autopsy, what you thought the contributing factors were to his death? I don't recall the specifics of that conversation. As far as I know, the only narrative record of that conversation would be what they wrote down. Um, I would be shocked if I did not tell them about Mr. Floyd's heart condition because obviously I knew that the moment the autopsy was done. I, I couldn't have known the toxicology results the afternoon of the autopsy because I wouldn't have those back for several more days. So you found initially that his heart condition was pretty significant, right? Yes, you would know that walking out of the autopsy suite. Uh, you received the... Uh you received the toxicology on June 1st of 2020? Uh, could I refer to my record and see if that's correct? Yes. On or about June 1st? That is correct. Uh, and I'm going off the toxicology report itself. It appears that it was issued on the morning of June 1st at 7.04. Okay. Do you recall having a conversation with Hennepin County prosecutors about the significance of the toxicology findings? I recall having the conversation. I don't recall the specifics of it, but I'm certain that I would have relayed the toxicology findings to them. Do you recall describing the level of fentanyl as a fatal level of fentanyl? I recall describing it in other circumstances. It would be a fatal level, yes, in other circumstances. And you all do... Would you agree that one of the causes of the pulmonary edema that you communicated to the county attorneys was also fentanyl? Fentanyl can certainly be a cause of pulmonary edema. Um, as I indicated earlier in previous questioning, it's confounded by the fact that Mr. Floyd had quite a bit of CPR, and so I find the pulmonary edema much less specific, um, given, given that he survived and made it to the hospital for a period of time. Do you recall telling the county attorney's office that had you found Mr. Floyd under different circumstances, uh, you would have determined this to be a fentanyl overdose. So I don't recall specifically what I told the county attorney, but it almost certainly went something like this. Had Mr. Floyd been home alone in his locked residence with no evidence of trauma, and the only autopsy finding was that fentanyl level, then yes, I would certify his death as due to fentanyl toxicity. Again, interpretation of dr drug concentrations is very context dependent. 
You then were also interviewed by the Federal Bureau of Investigation on or about uh, July 8th of 2020? Um, I, I believe it was the Federal Bureau of Investigation and or the U.S. Attorney. Um, a lot of these took place over video calls, and I wasn't entirely sure who was who at all times, but I believe it was those two groups, yes. Um, and that occurred on July 8th of 2020, correct? To the best of my recollection, yes. Were you asked but for type questions? I was. And were you able to form an opinion on but for the involvement of law officers whether Mr. Floyd would have died under these circumstances? Objection, Your Honor, the state of the state. Overruled, this is not the legal standard, simply uh, his diagnosis. We can go forward on that basis. So I'll answer the question, Counselor. As I mentioned earlier, there were multiple people on these video calls, and at some point there was more than one person asking questions at a time. I don't normally think of things in the but-for paradigm. Um, perhaps that's a legal thing, but it's not normally how I think as a forensic pathologist. So what I clarified for the U.S. Attorney and the Federal Bureau of Investigation was my opinion as to what happened to Mr. Floyd, and that is he experienced a cardiopulmonary arrest in the context of law enforcement's dual restraint and neck compression. It was the stress of that interaction that tipped him over the edge, given his underlying heart disease and his toxicological status. That was also clarified in a letter from the Hennepin County Attorney to the U.S. Attorney, I want to say, within a few days of that meeting because of the confusion around how that meeting was run and the way those questions were asked. Fair enough. Thank you. Again, the labeling this death as a homicide, that is a um, medical determination that you made, correct? Correct. It is not uh, the same standard as the legal standard, agreed? I don't even know what the legal standard is, but they are two different worlds. Now, in terms of your, again, um, involvement in uh, this case, you have actually testified twice at, in connection with other proceedings, right? Yes. Regarding the death of Mr. Floyd, right? Yes. And the first of those testimonies occurred 20th of August, 2020? Yes. You understand that those were transcribed and under oath, correct? Correct. And you... Uh, have had an opportunity to review those transcripts? I have. All right. And the first time you testified in connection with the death of Mr. Floyd, um, at any point do you recall saying that I have to defer to a some other specialty? I believe I said that multiple times. The first time you testified or the second time you testified? I recall it was much more frequent the second time. I don't, I don't recall how often it happened the first time, if at all. In terms of the placement of Mr. Chauvin's knee, um, would that explain anatomically why Mr. Floyd, would that anatomically cut off Mr. Floyd's airway? In my opinion, it would not.
do, do you testify extensively about the significance of the coronary arteries and the heart disease? Uh, I'm not sure what you mean by the word extensively, Counselor. I, if we need to pull out the transcript, we can. I'm not sure what the word extensively means in this context. Okay. You, did, you talked about the uh, issues surrounding Mr. Floyd's death involving his coronary arteries, right? Again, I have no, I can't quote you the grand jury transcript, but if you'd like to pull it out, I'd be happy to refresh my memory. Sure. I'm almost certain it had to have come up. May I approach the witness, Your Honor? To refresh his recollection as he requested? Let's lay the foundation for refreshing first. In this uh, proceeding, did you testify about, do you recall testifying about uh, how the coronary arteries work relevant to providing the heart with blood? I'm almost certain that I would have. I can't imagine that I didn't, but I don't recall how extensively that took place without looking at the transcript again. Would looking at the transcript refresh your recollection about your testimony in that connection? In connection. Sure. May I approach? It does. So what, what was the problem with the coronary arteries in this context? I believe it's essentially the same answer I gave the jury earlier, which is because of the degree of narrowing of Mr. Floyd's coronary arteries, they have a limited ability to supply extra blood and, and oxygen to his heart muscle when he needs it. Um, on top of that, he's got a larger heart than a man his stature would normally have because he's hypertensive, and so that heart is going to need more oxygen, which those coronaries have a limited ability to deliver. And how do you think the introduction of methamphetamine to that scenario uh, impacts? Again, I can only give that a high-level answer as a forensic pathologist. I don't treat living people who have methamphetamine toxicity, but my understanding is methamphetamine is hard on the heart. It is going to increase heart rate. It's going to increase the work of the heart because it's a stimulant. And in the circumstances of this particular case, in terms of a person with an enlarged heart, narrowing of the arteries, right, and how does the introduction of methamphetamine affect that? And as I just said, it increases the heart rate, it increases the work of the heart. It's not something that I, as a forensic pathologist, would want to see in the blood of someone that has heart disease.
did you describe it as a multifactorial process, the death of Mr. Floyd? That certainly sounds like something I would have said, yes. Okay. And then you uh, testified a second time, correct? To the federal grand jury? Yes. Yes, I did. Um, and that was in February of 2021? Yes. And ultimately, uh, you deferred to experts uh, far more extensively in that second testimony than the first, correct? So the short answer to that is yes. The long answer is I believe I deferred to a pulmonologist repeatedly because there were so many questions about things like gradations of chest wall movement and would this, that, or the other thing impair a person's ability to breathe. And at some point, I clearly said, look, this is outside the scope of my expertise as a forensic pathologist. I think a pulmonologist would be better equipped to answer that question. I, I'm going to say I said the word pulmonologist at least a half dozen times in that testimony. Do you recall deferring also to emergency medical doctors? Again, it would depend on the context of the question, but I know I did reference emergency medicine doctors because some of the questions were like, when do you think Mr. Floyd really died? And how, about, how about cardiologists? Yes, if the question was specific to an area that would clearly be a cardiologist's expertise, I'm quite sure I would have referred to them as well. Thank you, Your Honor. I have nothing further. I'm going to be brief. Uh, so if we could look up, uh, uh, Brett, the uh, section on cause of death. So Dr. Baker, take into account the entire exchange you had with Mr. Nelson on Mr. Floyd's uh, medical conditions, on whatever testimony you gave, wherever you gave it. Mm -hmm. I want to bring our attention back to what's reflected in Exhibit 193. And taking all of that into account, uh, what today remains your opinion as to the cause of death for Mr. Floyd? So my opinion remains unchanged. It's what I put on the death certificate last June. That's cardiopulmonary arrest complicating law enforcement subdual restraint and neck compression. That was my top line then. It would stay my top line now. And so if we look at the other contributing conditions, those other contributing conditions are not conditions that you consider direct causes. Is that true? They are not direct causes of Mr. Floyd's death. That's true. They're contributing causes. And in terms of manner of death, you found then, and do you stand by today, that the manner of death for Mr. Floyd was, as you would call it, homicide? Yes, I would still classify it as a homicide today. Thank you, Dr. Baker. No further questions. Anything further? Council of the Cyber. They're off to another sidebar. We're running out of time for this segment. And so we'll go to a new segment and continue. Thank you for listening. <laughs>